Okay, uh, we're uh, continuing our study here in conversations with Jesus. Conversations with Jesus. We're in John 14, and uh, we're going to continue this series. We keep uh, just kind of trying to roll along and and do our best uh, to make some progress here. And I've uh, titled uh, this section uh, here with uh, Jesus in Matthew or Luke, in John 14. I'll get get it there myself. In John 14 is um, the statements of certainty. Statements of certainty. We're going we're gonna to begin again here at verse 15, in chapter 14, verse 15. Statements of certainty. And really, the two statements uh, here related are you will and I will. Uh, this idea of you will and I will. Let me, let me get us to thinking about that. You know, <clears throat> uh, some uh, years ago, I can't remember how long it was, uh, <clears throat> but there used to be a television show with a guy named Regis Philbin called Who Wants to Be a... Yeah, we finally uh, put together a game show and greed and figured out how to put that together. Uh, yeah, what a great, what a great idea. Um, and uh, I remember, and you probably remember, that in this particular game show, there were questions and, you know, you had to ask. And Regis always had a statement that he made to the person whenever it was getting close to this. And he'd say, that, is that your... Fine. Fine. Boy, y'all watch a lot of TV, don't you? Wow. A couple people going, what? Who is Regis? Anyway, um, um, but uh, the idea of, is, is that your final answer? Remember now, they had a couple of lifelines they could call, you know, have a couple of things if they weren't sure. Remember what they were? What, what was one of the lifelines? Phone a friend. Yeah. What else? You could, well, somebody over here watched a lot. <clears throat> yeah. Poll the audience. That's right. You know, po- you know, let's get some collective ignorance together on this question, Right. That's what I always think of it. You know, you get a bunch of people together, you just have some collective ignorance now. We pulled all of our ignorance together. Uh, but I remember, and you remember, that, you know, there was this idea, okay, we, you've talked about it, we've jabbered about it here a little bit with Regis, and he's laughed and cut. He says, is that your final answer? What he's saying was, I want your answer. What are you certain that you're going to say? What is your certain answer on this particular matter? And uh, he wouldn't, wouldn't go on. Uh, until they, I, you know, I, I don't think I ever saw anybody win a billion dollars that I can recall, uh, because I remember on a couple of occasions the way, and you'd probably did too, that you know people get to a certain level, <clears throat> and if they get the answer wrong, they went back down to like thirty-four thousand dollars. So they may have two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. You know, you kind of watched in the person's face their level of certainty, didn't you, about this question? Like, okay. Do I want to risk this? <clears throat> Do I want to go up with a possibility of getting $500,000? Am I certain that I could do that? Certainty is something often that the human mind desires. I did a couple of studies on psychology that, that suggested that certainty is something that is kind of helpful and necessary. I'm watching, though, in our culture, it seems to me that there is a sense in which the only thing that is certain, and the only thing that is real is uncertainty. <laughs> and sometimes people even would say to you or to I, or to you, me, that if we're certain about something, we're arrogant, right? In fact, there's uh, some workout I've watched. I won't tell you who because I don't want you going to it. Uh, uh, but there is an idea uh, r- running around, and some theologians, uh, uh, loosely uh, identified, as calling that the, the, the sin of certainty. The sin of certainty. In other words, it's sinful to be certain. It's wrong. Now, that, that, we, we've traveled a long way in our lives if we've come to the point that we want to say that certainty is now a sin. Uh, it's not on how to win a million dollars. It's what you need to have if you're going to go forward. But in our world today, in our culture today, it seems like that the one thing that's unpalatable or unacceptable is any level of certainty. Now, I'm not talking about arrogance. We're not, we're not talking about that. I tell my students often, I said, look, I know what I know, but I also know that what I know is not all there is to know. Did you get that down? <laughs> They're just going, I, <laughs> you know, I, I know what I know and you know what you know. And what you know and what I know, we know. But what we know may not be all there is to know, correct? So we're not talking about arrogance here in terms of certainty. We're not, we're not saying that we're just a bunch of people that if, you know, uh, you know uh, my dad used to say this statement. He said, hey, look, don't confuse me with the facts my mind's made up. <laughs> a lot of people like that, aren't there? 
don't keep confusing me with the facts. My mind's made up on this. Uh, we're not talking about arrogance as, in terms of certainty. We're not, we're not talking about a lack of teachableness or a lack of, of willingness to investigate and study. But we are saying that there are some things that certainty that uh, hopefully we can understand that Jesus teaches us that we can at least have some degree of certainty. So here's what I want us to look at. In John 14, chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus made this statement, and we spoke about this before Easter. I want to just touch it. Becky said I had five minutes on this, okay? She doesn't like me to go back over this stuff that we went over. Anyway, it says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You will. See, notice there in verse 15, you will. I will, verse 16, ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and he will be in you. Now, I want to refresh your memory here on a couple of things on the certainty matter here. The first one is this first certainty, a certainty of obedience. You will. Now, if you weren't here a couple of weeks ago, you can listen to it. But I, I, I just want to make a couple of more observations here that I felt like that I, that I sort of left out. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. Now, I'm not going to go over this long, but just say, listen, I want to suggest to you again that what we thought that the key to obedience was more information or more knowledge or more matters, but Jesus specifically states it here that the basis of obedience is love. I told you before that the, prob- or the reason that is is because in some ways we, we know that obedience can be the result of conformity. It's just what my group does. You know, I, you may be a part of a religious group and they do this or they don't do that. It's just a matter of conformity. Or obedience can be based in the selfish motive to avoid punishment. You know, it's, it's just, I don't want to get punished. I'm not interested. I gave an example uh, early, uh, two weeks ago. You can listen to it if you want to. When I was growing up and Vietnam was going on, you know, I, I knew guys that went to Vietnam not because they wanted to go, not because they thought they weren't, not because they thought it was a great idea. They didn't want to go to prison. They knew if they went to prison and they got out, they couldn't find a job. I also know people who went and volunteered because they said, I want to serve my country in this way. So conformity can be simply the matter of seeking to miss punishment. Or obedience can be the result of just trying to achieve a reward. If I'll do this, I'll get that. It's this kind of quid pro quo kind of idea with God. If you do this, you get that. If you work this way, these matters will happen. So obedience is a complicated thing. I don't want us to think it's just simple behavioral modification. It can be conformity. It can be the selfish motive to not get punished. It can be the selfish motive of reward. Now, there are all kinds of uh, ancillary issues here with that, but I just want to say to you, obedience is not just a simple matter. But Jesus seems to say that in terms of his followers, that the matter of obedience must be fueled, must be empowered by love. I would say it this way. As uh, we've said before, and I think it's on your, uh, I'll get there in a minute. I'll get there in a minute. Uh, The importance of love empowering obedience. But notice what Jesus said. If you keep my commandments, what were Jesus' commandments? Love your neighbors yourself. Love the Lord your God. That's not really true. See, that was a sucker punch. (laughs) This is why I thought I want to just touch this for a minute. I would say it this way, that that is the summation of Jesus' commandments. That's the summation. But it is not just that. Here's why I'm saying this. I think in our culture today, the word love, as you know, and I know, I think has probably been, you know, obliterated in in meaning. You know, I love Becky. I, I love books. Okay, it would be nice if, if English had a different word. Uh, Greek has three or four, actually, uh, but uh, it's just sort of been obliterated. And in some way or another, I'm, I'm concerned in my, with my students in this, that the idea of loving God and loving my neighbor may be left up to my own definition. You with me? I want to suggest something here. 
that love can get to the point, or this idea, if we just deal with the summation, okay, it's to love God and love your neighbor. Okay, but that isn't something then I get to sort of fill in the content on what that looks like. You know, I think uh, for Gary Shaw's basis, it's, it's uh, when I love him, I let him feed me lunch. And all of us, right? And Gary's going, hold on here a minute. <laughs> you know, people are, we're, listen, he's not kidding. They mean come today. They got plenty of food. They, you know, they want all, all of us to come. But sometimes when we just do this summary kind of statement that love means loving my neighbor, then I get to decide what that is. Or loving God, I get to decide what that is. I think that's the summation. But can I tell you, in the New Testament, that there are at least 38 specific commands that Jesus gives. At least 38. Some are duplicated. Here's some of them. When you're praying, he said, when you stand praying, forgive everyone else. He said, that's a command. He said, you should get rid of whatever causes you to sin. This is found in Mark, uh, first one. When you stand praying, forgive. Mark 11. If you've got something that causes you to sin, get rid of it. Matthew 5. Do not swear at all. Matthew 5. Love your enemies. Do not do your acts of piety to be seen by others. Do not despise little ones. Be merciful as your heavenly father. There are about 38 of these that are summed up, if you will. I, here, here's the example I'd use. I, I use Excel spreadsheets. Anybody else? By the way, my computer is working. I re-gutted that thing, took everything out of it, and fixed it. So it's not a Mac anymore. It's a Cliffy. It's not a Mac. It's a Cliff. It's a Cliff now. In a, in a spreadsheet, in a spreadsheet, when I do grades or something like that, I get sums. And so I want to know what the sum or the median score is. That's the sum right there. That's all of them, okay? What I want to do, though, is I need to go back in each individual grade and look at them and say, who's having trouble? I might say, oh, you know, on this particular exam, an 87 is the sum or the average of all of this. I say, that's great, man. Everybody's making, no, no. There's somebody over here made 107 and somebody over here made a 55. And I need to go to that student and say, hey, are you awake? No, <laughs> I I've gone to those students before and say, hey, we need to talk. I, you need to come see me. We, we need to talk about these things so I can help you, right? To say everybody's got an 87, one, that's, that's the sum. That's the summation of it all. That's wonderful. Looks like Cliff's doing a great job here. But I got three or four students in here. They're going to fail the entire class. This is the sum, I, and, I, and I'm good with it. But I want to know the individual details here that bring this. Let me say it this way. Jesus' specific commands give content to what it means to love God and love your neighbor. Say it again. Jesus' specific commands are what give content to what it means to love God and love your neighbor. My concern is that in our culture, that loving God and loving my neighbor has been reduced to my definition of what I think it would be good for you and my understanding of what I think would be fine for you and the way I feel about you instead of what Jesus said I should live. Does that make sense? I, I, this, to me, with my students, they're quick, and I, and I understand that. All of the commands, those 38, or there's actually more than that. A buddy of mine and I, we've kind of gone through the, you know, this is how geeky we are. Go through the Gospels and find all the imperative statements that Jesus made. Pull them out, put them in a nice chart, and then we feel good about ourselves. But, you know, <laughs> it's sad. <laughs> but all of these specific commands have to do with how loving my neighbor and loving God, what that looks like. Instead of it being reduced to all and everybody else having a different understanding. So I would suggest that when Jesus says, you love me, you'll keep my command. You won't just keep the sum. You'll, we will keep these here. Does that make sense? So I don't want to I, I hurry. I'm, I'm over my five minutes. It's important, though, that I think that, that we look at what Jesus said when he says to love me is to keep my commandments. How difficult is it for us that if we're just convinced in our minds, 
but our hearts aren't moved. We aren't invigorated by a loving relationship with Jesus in order to say, I want to do this, not because somebody's going to catch me, not because somebody's going to find out, but I want to do this because I genuinely love you. Now, you may say, Cliff, this is so elementary. I think it is. But I want to tell you something. I, I, I think we got to be reminded of this. We've got to be reminded of this. I, I told you uh, last time uh, this idea here. Uh, oh, that was the first point. <laughs> the certainty of love, this positive matter of that uh, love is what enables us to obey all of the commandments. Now, th- this is from John Wesley. We had it before, but this, this is the key to it. True Christian living is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. That's the sum, see? That's, that's the sum. But you cannot love God until you're convinced he loves you. This is where I think we haven't spent as much time because I said before, saying that if you love God, you'll obey him. That can just become another standard that you have to meet. It can be just another law or another rule that you've got to get with. Instead of saying, wait a minute, love to Jesus, love him and loving his commandments is the outgrowth, the upshot, the result, however you want to say it, it will happen when I love him. And it's only when I know he loves me that I have the energy to do that. If you want to write that down, it's 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. Listen, I, I don't particularly care to do yard work. I know that's probably a surprise to many of you. <laughs> I don't particularly care for it. But the other day we were talking and Becky was talking about some yard stuff that needed to be done. And I happened to not be busy, <laughs> sort of. <laughs> and you know what? I went out in the yard and planted seeds. I went out in the yard and ro- hoed up dirt for grass. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) I even, I even, let's get ready. Ready? Here it comes. I even mowed. Bless him, Lord. That's not particularly, I don't, you know, it's not enjoyable to me. It just isn't. I don't, you know, books and pens and paper and stuff like that are what I like. I did for one reason. I love Becky. I, no, yeah, I love Becky. I, I saw some things she was doing. She wanted some things done. She'd like for this to get taken care of. It wasn't, well, I guess I better go do it or she's going to hit me in the head. You know? Well, I guess I better go do this or I'll be in trouble. No, I said, you know what? It's not exactly what I love to do here, but I love her. And as a consequence, I'm going to do this. Now, listen, I, and maybe I'm belaboring the point here. There cannot be obedience because of love until the heart has been dealt with. Now, here's what Chalmers said. I told you before, the heart cannot give up its object by mere resignation or being convinced that the object is wrong. You can't say, well, you know, you shouldn't do this. No, it's a, there must be some alternative object that is so beautiful and so wonderful that the heart willingly gives up the old object for the new. The heart cannot give up its object of affection, whatever that object is. If that object is money, if that object is another person, if that object is fame, is that whatever it is, the, the heart can't give that object up until there is something more beautiful, more wonderful to take its place. That's why I gave you this phrase. I want you to write this down again. It's called the expulsive power. Of a new affection. It's the expulsive power of a new affection. Whenever an affection so gets a hold of our heart, whenever an affection gets so a hold of our heart that it expels, or even this, it regulates, it organizes. It brings order to every other affection in my heart and life. That's the Christian life.
That's the Christian life where love for Jesus orders and organizes and regulates the desires that are in my heart. Listen, I like to succeed. I want to make enough money to take care of Becky and me. I want to, but all of those things find their regulation, their order by the expulsive power of the affection to love and honor Jesus above everything. Now, I'm not trying to be over super spiritual here. I'm not trying to make you think, boy, Cliff thinks he's some spiritual. I'm just saying, I think I know what the key is here. It's the expulsive power of a new affection. It's not more rules, not more regulation, not more learning, not more oughts, not more shoulds. It's the heart being overtaken by a new affection. And that affection is that I know that God loves me and now I love him. It cannot be given up in this regard. I told you also, Floyd McClung, I think, makes this great statement that obedience is not an act of servitude. Obedience is an act of gratitude. Obedience isn't an act of servitude. Well, I got to do this. Well, I better do this or I'll be in trouble. Obedience isn't an act of servitude. Obedience is an act of gratitude, of thankfulness, of appreciation. So, went a little longer here. What if before next Saturday night you read the first section in Thomas Chalmers' book, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection? By the way, I have a link on the Facebook page to that book. It's in a PDF form. It's in a PDF form. You can go to the Facebook page for real life. Click it on. It's right there. It won't cost you anything. You don't have to sign up for anything. But what if this week you decided I was going to read the first section on that book? Or what if this week you said, I'm going to consciously obey one command of Jesus? Is it when you pray, forgive? Is it that there's something that, uh, that you are terribly tempted in sin to get rid of it? Is it... Is it to love your enemies or start with your neighbor first? <laughs> you know, start with your neighbor. Is it to say, this week I'm going to obey one of these, one of these, out of an understanding of the love of God to me. Not out of, not out of, some, organiz, not out of some compulsion, not out of reward, not out of fear of punishment, but in order that I might do it as an act of love and appreciation to Jesus. Does that make sense? Yeah, Bill. What spreadsheet? I could. Yeah, or something. You want that? Okay, I'd expect all 38 to be obeyed this week. <laughs> Bill, I'm trying to help you out, give you one. Okay. Yeah, think all of us, we get 38? Yeah, okay. Whole class, okay, all of us will do one, somehow. Yeah, well, Bill, you know, here's, here's what I teach. Why not? Yeah. I tell my students in application, I say, don't swing for the fence, man. Give them something they can do. Bill will do all 38 this week. We'll be talking to you next week, Bill. But I can. I can, I can put some of that, 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 the, those data up on the up on website. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's already here. You wrote a clause in your heart. Okay. Well, there's some of those there. Some of those are there. Yeah. Romans 1. But yeah, I think it, I, yeah, we, I can get some of those up there. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, it, yeah. Or you know what you could do? You could just... Go through the Gospels and find them yourself. <laughs> Bunch of lazy people. <laughs> it's the first question I ask a student when they come to you. Dr. Sanders, I have a question about this. And I say, what? And they give me the question. I said, have you researched this yet? No, I'm not answering it. Not answering it. Go to the library. What's that? Well, let me walk you over here. <laughs> We had a tornado drill the other day, no kidding, and we all had to get to the library because it's underground, and I said, welcome. Some of you have never been here before. <laughs> they didn't think that was funny. <clears throat> now, the whole notion here, again, is to say that obedience is a matter of love. I, I just want to press us a little bit here in this. Maybe we've been a Christian too long and we just have gotten to what I call B.F. Skinnerian Christianity where it's behavioral modification. We just do these things. We just do them. Instead of saying, wait a minute, I want to consciously do this as an act of love. I, I, I want to be able at this moment to do that. So I'm going to ask you. Now, there's another thing here that I see, the certainty of love in the negative dimension. I'm going to hurry. Jesus, well, you know, whatever that means. Uh, Jesus also says this in this whole section now through here. Look down here 
um, I'll find my place here, uh, in verse 24. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the words which you hear are, my, are not mine, but the Father who sent me. This whole section is laced with this idea about love, about what love is and how to, to live it out. But here's a, here's a negative sense that Jesus says, if you don't love me, you're not going to obey me. You know, that's, that's a hard pill to swallow. Just, I, I know that there's a thing called temptation. And I know that we're fallen and there's the draw on us. Seems, uh, you know, Lord, I, uh, uh, you know, it's prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Remember that old hymn? Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Bind my heart. But Jesus is saying here, if, if you don't love me, you're not going to obey me. Now, I don't think that's just some list, but it's the idea here that love has some content to it. Love has some content. I want to give you a, a definition, if, if you will, of, of sin here. This is it. If you don't love me, you won't obey me. I, I've given this to you before, but I, I just want to reiterate it here. See, I think if really what Jesus, some said that really all of it is to love God and love your neighbor, and then his individual commands give us the content of what that looks like, what the, how, that, how that operates. I was reflecting on this uh, some years ago with my neighbor who was not a Christian, uh, not followers of Jesus, and they were good people. They really were. They had good, good, good kids. Uh, they, were, they, they paid their taxes. They weren't hard to get along with. They were nice people. And I, and I remember thinking, how do I talk to these people about following Jesus? You know, they're not bank robbers, uh, you know, yet. And uh, they had a bunch, a couple of girls. We went to a recital uh, for these four-year-olds, loosely called so. I've never seen so many little kids just... <laughs> if I was a parent had to pay for that dress and all that stuff, you better dance. <laughs> That's why I'm not a parent. <laughs> God do better. Um, and, and, and I'm thinking about this, and, and, and I'm wondering, how do you talk to somebody? You know, I don't think every person that's not a follower of Jesus, you know, they're just terrible and bad. They're, they're moral. The Many of them are nice, wonderful people. And as I was working through the New Testament, this, this at least, I'm sure I've read this somewhere from John Wesley or someone, but I want to give this to you, that, that I think Jesus is speaking here is this, is that sin is misdirected love. Misdirected love. Something's happened. I'm loving someone or something more than Jesus. It's what gives me the energy to not do what he says. My heart has been affected now. Something has gotten a hold of me. And I don't mean in some kind of weird way. I, I just mean my love that is to be guided toward him has been misdirected to another object or another thing. See, it's, it's all about love, folks. Obedience is about love. And sin is about love that's gotten misdirected. Sin is to say, I'm going to love this thing or this person or this matter more than I love Jesus. I know that sounds sappy in some way. It sounds like a Hallmark card maybe. But this is where we live. This is the notion that as Chalmers says, and, and others talk about this expulsive power of a new affection. This is why this is happening. We're getting drug off in our affection, in our love. I'm not saying you can't love God. I, I, when I teach this, I had a young lady one time come to me after I taught her. And she goes, I think I love my boyfriend more than God. And I'm thinking, yeah. No, I, I didn't say that. I said, it's not possible. It's not possible. Settle down. Settle down. You know, she goes, what do you mean? I said, if you loved him more than you loved Jesus, you wouldn't be concerned in talking to me. That's why I'm a professional. <laughs> <laughs> Gee whiz, these kids. 
I'm not talking about some weird monastery you got to go live at. I am talking about, and I think Jesus is talking about, that if you don't love me, you won't have the energy to obey me. If you don't love me, you can't do this. You you really don't have the strength to do this and pull this off. See, it doesn't mean we can't love others or love some things. I love going to Colorado. I I love, you know, I love going out to eat Mexican food. I'm just giving y'all some ideas here. (laughs) If anybody's going to Colorado, just call me up. And Becky. Yeah, she likes it too. I'm I'm not saying that. That, that, that God demands us to not love anything and just not care about anything? I am saying that I think that Jesus says here in other places that God's love is, or when we don't love, when our, when our love gets misdirected, we begin to get out of balance and other things become too important. Other things become too important. Dave Clemens and I were talking the other day at breakfast, and I put it in my prayer list because Dave said this. He said, you know, in the parable of the sword, Jesus said it was the cares of the world, desire for other things, and the deceitfulness of riches that caused the word to get choked. Isn't it funny? He didn't say, and it was that somebody's addicted to pornography, or it didn't say because somebody's a bank robber. It's these everyday things, guys. So, so I, I put in my, my prayer every morning to look at Cliff, Cliff, don't let your love for Jesus get compromised by the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things. It's kind of simple. That, that's how insidious this is because what is it doing? It's attempting to get our love readjusted. I want to say to you again, sin it's fundamentally misdirected love. Maybe I love myself more than I love Jesus. Maybe, maybe I love others more than I love Jesus. Maybe I want friends so badly, I will do anything they ask me to do, no matter what, if it contradicts what Jesus says. Because I want that. And instead of that love to Jesus, it's going right there to that friend or that situation. Sin it's when I say, I'm not going to do it. I told you before, I, now when I'm tempted, and I am like anybody else, and I'm drawn in those areas, I'm starting to ask this question. Not, is it wrong? I better be careful. I'm saying, what's going on in my heart right now? What's going on in my heart to be drawn in this direction? What's going on in my heart to be pulled in this direction? Because as you know, as we said before, you know, when, when the love of God is reigning and ruling in our heart and life, the desire is to please Him, to honor Him. It's that expulsive power of a new affection that's regulated. I wrote this. I, I don't have time for this, and, so, and it may not be fair to say it, but I will because I can. All right, leave me alone. Here we go. <laughs> There is an idea in the, in the Bible that's related to this, and it's this, that God is a jealous God. You know, I'm, I'm afraid sometimes we made God so sappy and sentimental, it just is all syrup and sweetness. Let me tell you, this God wants your heart more than anything. He wants a relationship with us more than he, and he is a jealous God. He knows the heart is the matter. He looks over us, watches over us, and he says, I, Cliff, I want your affection. I want your heart. I've loved you. I want you to know that, but I want your affection. I want your heart. This isn't just grind it out Till you get to the end. He's a jealous God. I, I, you may say this sounds crazy, but I just tell you, I don't think God subscribes to the Stephen Stills philosophy. Love the one you're with. <laughs> you know? If you're down and confused, 
and you don't remember who you're talking to, concentration slips away because your baby is so far away. You didn't come to church for this, but you're going to hear it. <laughs> but when there's a rose and the fisted glove and the eagle flies with a dove and you can't be with the one you love, you what? See, that, that's misdirected love. I can't be with the one I want to be right now. We'll get together later, but I'm going to love the one I'm with. No. God's a jealous God. That doesn't mean He's hateful. Hard. It means He watches over. He notices. He's concerned. He, you know, in the Old Testament, and I didn't have this in my notes, but that's okay. In the Old Testament, one of the things that has always affected me, you ought to go back and read it. You know, we have this idea that the Old Testament is, you know, God is crazy and mean and hateful in the New Testament. He had a makeover or something, you know, and, and uh, he, he got nice. In the Old Testament, the prophets, whenever God speaks to his people about their sin, it's always in terms of a broken marriage. That, that, that his people have gone and played the harlot. That's what he calls them. You've gone and played the harlot. You've laid down under every tree, he says there in Isaiah. You've made yourself open to anyone that would come along. You've become a harlot. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? He didn't say you broke the law. You, you sped. <laughs> you went too fast. He said, you have broken a heart. Your husband. Your husband, the one who loved you, the one who cared for you, the one who brought you, he says, out of Egypt and took the thing off of your face so you could drink. He said, you've gone harloting. Why? Because this is a God who knows that obedience is a matter of love. You don't break a law. I don't break a law. When I sin, I break a heart. Now, Man, all this stuff is so hard because I'm not trying to develop shame or a sense of that. I'm trying to say that just like in our relationships with our husbands or wives or friends, it's love that motivates. A friend of mine one time uh, was having some problems and, and uh, I, I kept talking to them and, and discussing things with them. And another person that knew about it said, because this person really didn't want me in their life. Can't imagine that, huh? I, th I think they felt guilty a little bit about something, you know, but I said, keep talking to him, calling him. This person said to me, they said, Cliff, why do you keep doing that? And I said, because they're my friend. They're my friend. I don't decide, okay, I'm out. You know, the same thing with God. He's saying, look, I'm your husband. I'm, I'm the lover of your soul. Don't, don't go loving other things and other matters. Sin is misdirected love. So when I talked to my friend, a long way around that story, I talked to my friend, talked to my next door neighbors. I was prepared to say, look, I... I, I think you're moral people and you're good people. I just think your love's goofed up. You know, in marriages, sometimes this happens, doesn't it? A couple longs for a child, and it takes a while, and then they finally have one. And all of a sudden, the distance between the husband and the wife starts getting like this. That child requires a lot of help and a lot of attention. I understand that. Requires a lot of attention and effort. But what begins to happen is the, the, the love that was between that couple, now it gets misdirected. And couples have to work at this. It's hard work to say, we can't let this child, the love for this child and care for this child, misdirect our love to one another till we start coming apart. God gave you a husband or wife or friends or a house or a job. You can, we can love those things. We, we can enjoy them. But they can't begin to start the separation now. The separation that those things become more important 
did love to God or to Jesus. The third B, the certainty of help. We won't get through this today. But I just, I hope you'll indulge me in this regard. We've got to recover this. Or we're going to make Christianity, again, a bunch of rules and regulations that we feel pretty good about because we've kept them all and our heart goes untouched. And the heart is unaffected. Jesus then says this thing. He says, you love me, you'll keep my commands, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he will be with you forever. This other matter of certainty is what Jesus says. Notice what he says. He says, I will. Now, I want to show you a statement here, and you know my particular theology, I think, at this point. I've been really excited about Easter, and I'm very thankful for that, but you know, if you've been around me long enough, that this, that I don't think Easter is the goal of God's activity. I think it's the means. I don't think Easter is the story's over, we're done, isn't that great, hallelujah. The story of Easter is wait for 50 days and something's going to happen. Wait until the coming of the Holy Spirit. I believe, and we're going to celebrate that on May the 15th, we're having a party in here again like we do. We're going to have a party around here because we're going to look at what Jesus said with some degree of certainty I'm going to help you with. Watch this. And this is from a guy I know, John Oswald. It's one of the greatest Old Testament scholars I know when he says this. Except for Isaiah 53, the giving of the Holy Spirit is considerably clearer in the Old Testament than in his, Jesus's, atoning death and resurrection. There is more said in the Old Testament about the coming of the Holy Spirit than there is about the atonement. And I think that, that statement, that argument can be made. Isaiah 53, you bet. Major passage right here. The rest of the Old Testament is emphasizing that there is now coming the promise of the Spirit. And as Wesleyans, I'll just tell you this. We're people who believe that you can't live the Christian life in your own strength or energy or effort, but it must be through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Don't we? We believe that. This isn't try harder. This isn't work at it. This isn't, I mean, we participate, we're involved, but we believe that Jesus did not finish the work of redemption on the cross or the tomb. It happens at a place called, or a city called Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Remember what he said after he rose from the dead? He didn't say, sick him. That's what I thought he should have said, right? Rose from the dead, can't touch me, you know? Not the MC Hammer thing, but... Uh, <laughs> What do you say? Wait. Wait. It's not over. Wait. He's saying here, I'm going to ask the Father and He will give you another helper that He may be with you there. I want to walk through this real quick. There's a lot of things here. We've we got to keep working through this section. It's interesting, uh, one scholar uh, read it, said like this, that on Easter, God's wrath was poured out on his son as a sin offering. At Pentecost, God's Holy Spirit is poured out on us. Get that now. At Easter, God's wrath is poured out on his son as a sin offering. After Easter, God's Spirit is poured out on us, the Holy Spirit. So look what Jesus said. I'm going to ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. The word another here is really important. I don't think I have that on your slide. I've got these in front of me. The word another. Uh, in Greek, at least, uh, it, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's pretty important. The word another, literally translated this way, another of the same kind. Another of the same kind. Now, you, you can see this in Galatians 1 at, at some point. There's also another word for another called heteros, another. It's another of a different kind. In Galatians 1, Paul says, there's people that have come here and given you another gospel. He means it's another of a different kind. This word here means that Jesus is saying, I'm bringing you another helper of the same kind. The same kind is who? This is the youth camp answer right here. Okay, you're, you're safe. Jesus, a helper 
of another kind. You know, it would be helpful for you maybe, and we'll, we, can, we can do this later, but think about how all the ways that Jesus helped them. He taught them. He cared for them. He dealt with them when they failed. I mean, all of these things that Jesus did, he says, I'm going to ask for another helper for you. Why do we need another helper? Because we need help. (laughs) That's deep, right? Yeah. We need another helper because we need help. Do you know that? The, the, the idea here of Jesus saying there's another helper here, another one of the same kind. That I, and then the word helper here, parakletos, in Greek, uh, verse 16. I'm going to end here with this, but, but let me just uh, uh, draw your attention to that. The word helper, it, this word is di- different uh, translations, advocate, helper, comforter, all kinds of things. Here's what it literally means. It comes from the Greek word parakletos. Para means alongside. And kaleo means to call. It literally means somebody who is called to be alongside you. Now, Jesus is going to ramp this up even more. Not only is this one called to be alongside you, this one is called what? To be in us. But this idea of the principle here is that the Holy Spirit, he's called to be alongside you. He's called. Now, who called him? Did, I, did we? Hey, we need help over here. No. The Father. Jesus said, I'm going to ask the Father. I'm going to pray for this. is the certainty of this. And he's going to give you and me another helper. Someone called along our side to be with us. Do, do you ever struggle with this? When you're in trouble or a struggle? Where's God? You know where he is? He's alongside you. Let me remind you, you know this, but this is how twisted up we've gotten. Most people I know, when they sin or fail, never ask, where is God? Where is he? Do you ever wonder if God is near when you sin? Think about it. You ever wonder, I wonder where God is. You're going, "Uh uh-oh. The nearness of God is something nobody ever struggles with when they sin or fail. What is it about us that whenever we're in difficulty or having problems, that's when we think, where's God? It's because we don't know that Jesus called this helper to be here. And we can be certain. He said, I'm going to ask the Father. Do you think the Father is going to give him his request? Listen, I just want to press on you a little bit here for me as well. You, You and I need to lean into the fact that something's happened to our understanding of God, that whenever we are never wondering where God is when we sin, but we're always wondering where he is when we're in trouble. Something's got to get adjusted here. Something's got to get corrected in our understanding that this certainty that Jesus said, I'm going to ask the Father, and he's going to give the Holy Spirit to you. It's fascinating. He identifies him with this. He's going to be there. He's going to be your helper. You can call Verse 26, you can write a note in your Bible there. I know this is the Holy Spirit because look down at verse 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance that I said. The helper isn't some vacuous, unknown presence. It's the Holy Spirit. That Jesus said, I'm going I'm to send him to you. Listen, the next time you're in trouble, the next time you fail, the next time you struggle, you have an advocate. I want to finish with this last verse. I know I'm keeping you late here, but I'll hurry, sort of. Uh, <laughs> I just want you to go, go get this verse. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. Because this idea of the helper, the advocate. First, John writes this. He says, I write these things to you, my little children, that you not sin. But if, some translations would say, if or when you sin. I want you to look at the language here very carefully. 
We have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus, the righteous, who is the propitiation not only for our sin, but the sin of the whole world. I want you to look at that verb. We have. And you don't have to go get one. You don't have to go find him. You don't have to look for him. You don't have to ask for him. The word there says, we have an advocate. It's the same Greek word here, parakletos. We have the Holy Spirit who's our advocate, our, our, our comforter, our helper with the Father. And I know in my own journey, part of the struggle for me has been, do I have to go get this advocate or is he already here? I want, to hear, I, want, I want you to hear because of Easter, because of where we're going to Pentecost. You don't have to ask for this one. You have him. You have an advocate. That's a certainty. That's what it says right there. I will ask the Father. He will give you. So if you fail, I hope you don't. You know, it would be nice if we can follow Jesus and let his love direct us. But if you do, the first thing I want you to do is to say, I have an advocate. Now, let's pray. Lord Jesus, what wonderful gifts you've given to us. What a wonderful life you've given to us as we open our hearts to allow you to work in our lives to enable us to love you because you've loved us. Would you let us live this week in some level of certainty some level of certainty that we can obey you as we love you. And we can have this advocate, this helper, because you've asked for him for us. It's not something we have to ask for. You've asked. So help us to live this week in the awareness, in the, in the strength of this advocate living with us and guiding us in Jesus' strong name. Amen.